We're working our way through Galatians and essentially trying to do that thing of uh, trying to work out what was going on there because in those area of Turkey, in that, that area called Galatia, in the middle there of Turkey, um, in the first century, uh, Paul is writing to the churches and trying to help them to stay faithful to Jesus, essentially is what's going on. And they're facing all sorts of their own pressures and challenges. And in a sense, what you're doing when you come to the Bible all the time is you're trying to work out, well, what was going on and why did Paul say that? And what, was, what did he mean by that? But then you're also trying to do that other listening that says, so what, what would Paul say to us if he were writing to us? And what would he say that would reflect some of that, um, some of those thoughts he had? I'm going to read together. If you find a Bible from uh, verse 26 of chapter 3, um, which I know Steve um, was highlighting last week, and then we'll uh, roll into uh, the end of the chapter, actually, the end of chapter 4 or halfway through chapter 4. So here we go. Um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one, in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, the next bit you're going to have to concentrate on because it's not a simplest passage. <laughs> what I'm saying is that as long as heirs are underage, they're no different from slaves, although they own the whole estate. They're subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by their fathers. So also, um, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now, I'm reading from the NIV and a certain version of that, and I almost guarantee that if you're reading from anything other than the version I've got, it will say something different at that point. And I'll come to that in a moment. But when we were underage, he said, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer slaves, but God's children. And since you're also his children... He's also made you his heirs. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now you know God, or rather unknown by God. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Again, it probably says something different in yours. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. That's, by the way, a verse for the fridge magnet. All right. <laughs> so your children see it every time they go to the fridge. <laughs> I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. 
You've done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What's happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you'd have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And he says that because it's quite probable that his illness was a, an eyesight problem. And he's saying, you were so good to me that you would have given me your very eyes so I could have seen. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided this purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. It's a great passage. It's not the easiest passage, but it's actually Paul writing to this church and going, what's happened you start out so well, and you're just coming back, you're going backwards into the ways you once were. I don't know what you've made of this week's news, but it's been quite a week, hasn't it? Sometimes you kind of get the idea, or it feels a little bit like the whole country's in, a nervous, in the grip of a nervous breakdown, and no one's quite sure, or at least the government seems to be, or the parliament seems to be. And so what you get are lots of people shouting at each other. And um, it's been awful. It's been awful. And essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert and it's easy to try and make things simple that are not simple. But on one level, it's been a week of people trying to get control and working out who should have control. Is it the prime minister? Is it the government? Is it parliament? Is it courts? And everybody's seeking to gain control of a situation that they think if we could just control it, we'd be able to make it okay. But the situation seems so bigger than even, you kind of wonder, well, <laughs> I'm not sure who can control it. But it's all been about that control on a, on a national level. And every time you've put on the news this week, that's been what you've been watching. But you probably know how that feels on a really personal level as well. When things start to become shaky, then what we want to do is get control again. If I can just control this situation, it'll be all right. I don't think any of us particularly like things happening to us. I don't know what it was like for you um, being uh, sort of hearing the news that Thomas Cook had gone bust. But I'm sure one of the things that would have been really difficult if I'd have been in your position would be that sense of, I can't control this. And that's what brings anxiety. <laughs> and what's going to happen next? And, and, and I guess most of you know how that feels. I don't know many of us that sort of go, hey, it'll be fine. I think it's always been the case. And I think when we start reading here in Galatians, in some ways I want to suggest that what was going on back then were in the churches, people 
were being tossed about by situations and uncertainties. And what they were doing was trying to find ways of retaining control. And there were a number of ways that were being offered to them. Is How do you control things that are happening to you? I hope this will make sense in a moment. But before I get there, let me just remind you that in the middle of this passage, there's sort of like the heart of Paul's gospel, the heart of the good news. And it's this, that God sent his son so that we all could become sons of God. In a nutshell, that's kind of like the gospel. God sent his son that we all could become sons of God. And there's two things I just want to point out. Firstly, for some people at that time who had grown up in the Jewish faith, they knew that they were sons of God. They knew that they were children of God. But suddenly these people who'd come in from the outside, who were Gentiles, they were being told, you come into our story. You come into the Old Testament story. You come into the story of Abraham and Moses. You come into the God who fights for you. You come into this story. We're all sons of God. And the second thing is that normally, if I were quoting something like that, I would use uh, an inclusive word rather than sons. And uh, indeed, in, in the version I'm reading from, which is the NIV, Today's New International, they call it children. And the reason just this morning I want to say it's about sons is because actually at that time, the perceived significance of sons were you got the privilege. And that's why Paul uses the language of sons. He could have said children, but he wants you to know, because in that day, if you were a son, you got everything. And unfortunately, if you were the daughter, you were definitely second class. And it was the way the Greco-Roman world worked. But Paul wants to say, in Christ... You and I, regardless of gender, it's what Steve was saying last week, regardless of gender and regardless of ethnic background and regardless of history, you're sons of God. God doesn't have stepchildren. He doesn't have second-rate citizens in the kingdom. He doesn't have his special ones and the rest. He doesn't have his favorites and the rest. He just has sons and you're it. You are a son of God. God sent his son that we might be sons of God. The full rights, not of young children, but of adult children who are able to live as full heirs of the promise, of the presence and of all the potential that's in God. And so Paul's really quite indignant with them because what's going on is they're sort of, he's gone in and preached this and they've thought this was brilliant. All right, so all these people have become Christians and thought it was brilliant and now they're being rocked and they're going back and they're going back to the old way of life. And it's really about, I, I, Paul wasn't playing cards or poker, but <laughs> what I was trying to use this to talk about was that sense of, what keeps you lucky? What keeps it lucky? That's not a language you use in church very often, is it? But that, do you remember when I said the elemental spiritual force of the world and I said it might be different in your Bible and for some it's basic principles, those who by nature are not gods, the weak and miserable principles which might be weak and miserable forces. There's all sorts of ways because the Greek 
word is that word, that second word down, stoicheia. And, and like many terms, when you're translating from Greek, which the letter would have been written in, to English, there's some words that are not easy to go word for word translation. And that's why sometimes it's very difficult when you're reading stuff and, they, and people will go, the actual meaning is this. Sometimes it's not quite as simple as that. The range of meaning is this. And this is certainly one of those words. It's a very unusual word in the New Testament. It crops up here, but it seems to be really important to Paul because he said, once upon a time, before you knew Jesus, you thought your fate was in the hands of forces that were outside of your control. You thought that the way your life would work out would be according to gods, according to elements, according to other forces in your life. Stick with me. All right, just for a moment. There were four, the Greeks believed there were four elements, fire, earth, air, and water. They were like the, the fundamentals of life. And the cycle of the seasons all had to do with these elements. And the gods interacted with the elements. And what you had to do was make peace with the gods because the gods were capricious. The gods were not on your sides. You couldn't work out. Some of these gods didn't work for your good. These gods needed your sacrifice because you needed gods on your side. That's their framework. And Paul said, why would you want to go back to thinking that's how life is? Why would you want to go back to thinking that your life is in the hands of gods that you can't trust? Why would you want to go back to believing that your, your life is down to luck? Why would you want to go back to it's just fate? Why would you want to go back to trying to manipulate luck? And we go, well, that's all very interesting, but we're far more sophisticated than that. We used to live next door to someone who had um, an illness. He was, he was not well. But what it meant was he, was, um, he, he had to engage in obsessive behavior. So you'd watch him coming out of his house and then he'd have to count how many times he could push the door to make sure it was locked. And then he'd walk up the path and then he'd go back again and do it again. He, he, he wasn't well. And when we talked to him, he acknowledged he had to do this. He said, it's the only way I can make sure it's locked. It's a pattern of behavior that had gripped him. How do you control your security? Well, it's a pattern of behavior. You've got to do it this way. Some of you may know how that feels to a lesser degree. <laughs> you may have your own sort of ways of doing things. And it's kind of like a way of controlling something that you're fearful of in some ways, perhaps. I'm not, I'm not anything at this point except just saying, you might know how that feels. And the rest of you go, well, thank goodness I don't feel like that. I just leave my door open. <laughs> but you've got other people who are more trivial responses. How do you control the world? Well, you don't walk under ladders. You wouldn't buy a house that's number 13. You wouldn't want to live on the A666. <laughs> There's certain things that 
and, and, and it's kind of interesting because we live in some of the most sophisticated times, but people will go, touch wood, I've been quite well recently. And, and, and I've been with people who are quite, in, you know, sort of like reasonably intelligent, and they go, touch wood. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of like, what are you expecting, the sky to fall in? And it's a trivial response. But actually behind it is an old-fashioned way of thinking, how do you control the world? How do you keep the world in order? You might come across people, you might be yourself, who go, I've got my lucky numbers. All I want to say to you is if your lucky numbers come up, will you please talk to me? (laughs) I've got my lucky numbers. It could be you. And lots of people, and you know, this is not really the point of the sermon, but you and I both know that sometimes you watch some of the poorest people in our society spending a lot of money on lucky numbers because actually it could just be, it could be you, it could be you. This is how, this is how your life will change. The turn of a number, but your lucky numbers. And I suspect that most of those people don't change their numbers each week, even though statistically... They might as well just go one, two, three, four, five, six. But nobody would do that because that's not how it works. Lucky numbers. You have people who go, I saw a feather, a white feather. And it was, and then any number of things. It was an angel, it was this, it was that, it was a reminder. Da, 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 da. And so it goes, trivial perhaps, but people who will believe and will use language was, it was meant to be. And then you ask them, who by? And they find it difficult to say, who meant this for me? It's just, it was meant to be. And so you scratch the surface, and we're not that far away from Greco-Roman worlds, where you've got to do certain things in certain order in order to keep control of the world. And then perhaps there's the final ways this happens, which is the subtle pressure where you make your own rules. I have to. And what begins as a guideline becomes a rule. So I have to run every other day. Or I can only eat dot, dot, dot. Or I must clean the house this number of days. Some of you going, clean the house? (laughs) There's a concept. (laughs) And some of us know how it feels then, because actually, this is nobody else is making this on us. We just put it on ourselves. And you know how you feel when you fail, and suddenly you fail, and you beat yourself up, because you fail to live up to your own rules, your own way of dealing with the world. All of these, I want to suggest, are ways of believing that the world can be ordered and we can stay in control. And what Paul had done with the Galatians, he'd gone and he'd said, let me tell you about the power of the cross that releases you from being enslaved to, and he uses that language, doesn't he? What did he say? The elemental spiritual forces of the world, the weak and miserable forces. 
Christians, Paul would want you to believe, should be the most free. The people who can, not because everything goes every time well for us, but actually because there's nothing to fear here for you're being held by the power of the cross. So when these Galatians had folks come along and saying to them, you're not good enough, which is one of the themes that we've been talking about when we've been looking at this, Paul wants to say, you are sons of God. You're part of the big story. You're sons of God. And it's really easy for us to, unintentionally sometimes even as Christians, what we think is really important for me I lay it on someone else. I might find it really helpful to get up at a certain time and to pray in a certain way and to do certain things. And it's so tempting for me then to lay it on someone like Ian. I might think there's certain shirts that ought to be worn in church <laughs> and then lay it on him as a law. <laughs> so tempting. Because the things I find helpful, I lay on someone else. And what I'm saying to the other person is, you're not good enough as you are. And Paul wants to say, you're a son of God. Male and female, you're a son of God. And I can't emphasize that enough because I know how... Um, how insistent that voice is in our head. Even the best put together of us were a scratch away from being reminded, oh, you're not really, you're not really as good as you should be. But the second thing is, I think Paul would want to say, I think he was saying it to the Galatians, I certainly think he'd want to say to us is, will you stop trying to control everything? I read this quote and I found it helpful by a guy, a writer called David Benner. He said, fearful people live within restrictive boundaries. People who live in fear feel compelled to remain in control. They attempt to control themselves and they attempt to control their world. And often, despite their best intention, this spills over into efforts to control others. It's a brave man and it's a brave woman who goes, I see that trait in me. It's often much easier to see it in other people. It's much easier to diagnose it in someone else. They're really controlling. But actually to be able to own up and go, do you know what? Sometimes that's the temptation I have to try and control my own world. Because... I'm frightened because I'm frightened it's going to spin out because I'm frightened that the worst that will happen because I'm frightened I'm going to get hurt because I'm frightened of all that's going on. And Paul writes and says, that fear will lead you to all those other behaviors. How do you manipulate situations? How do you manipulate other people? How do you try and get things to work for you? And Paul says, you don't need to. Because you're a son of God. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, 
to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Jesus comes and on the cross what happens is all that stuff he carries so that you don't have to. All that rubbish he carries so we don't have to. It is the great exchange where he comes and he says, give me your fear and I will give you my life. And you will live free. Now for some of us, that's a lifetime of learning a new habit. You know that thing of, um, they, what do they call it? Uh, muscle memory. You know where you've had something in a certain place for all the time and then you, you sort of instinctively go for it. And then you, if you've changed it, it can... When we moved house, it was remarkable how many times we were really in the car, not thinking where we were going, and turning up, and it's like, Rodney, you don't live here anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. You don't, you're, not, you're not aiming there. You just don't live here. And it's why it was muscle memory that turned left at uh, the Henry Boddington, um, not right. It was just muscle memory. I wasn't thinking. And I, I think it's the same way for those of us for whom we are ingrained living with fear, it's almost like you know theologically Jesus comes and says, the cross can break this. Give me your fear and I will give you my life. But actually what you'll have to do is keep on walking in line with that self-consciously because muscle memory kicks in and fear is greater than your truth. If that makes sense. I think that's what discipleship is about. Learning to live the way of Jesus in your context. And then, to bring this in to land, he goes on to say, because you are his sons, and again, it's that language I want to keep of today of sonship, because that's your identity, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father, You know as well as I do that that word Abba is simply the intimate word that would have been used within the family. Uh, it's not a childish word. It's not in, in, in the nicest sense. If, you know, some people talk about daddy. And, and for me, I, my, my, I would, I've not called my father daddy since I was seven. All right. And if I called it him now, he would just think something really weird was going on. <laughs> Call him dad. And it's not that you infantilize yourself. That's what I'm trying to say. It's you have an intimate relationship. Not infantile, but intimate. And Paul says, the Spirit has been poured out into our lives that we might know our God that intimately. So you're no longer a slave to the old ways but you're a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. You get to inherit all that he's promised. So what is this spirit that cries out within us, Abba, Father? It's almost like um, Paul uses all sorts of metaphors, but one of the metaphors he uses is the deposit metaphor. That God puts a deposit in your heart that guarantees something's going to come. You pay your 10%, you know you're going to get it. He puts the spirit in you now that guarantees all that's to come. 
How does the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father? How does that actually happen? It's that deep seated, that deep sense, I'm his. I don't need to prove it. I don't need to prove it to God. I don't need to keep on working harder. He's not cross. I'm his. And I'm his because of what he's done. That's the cry of the Spirit. The cry that enables you to call out, Abba, Father, that intimate relationship with God, I'm yours. And Paul, when we were reading together, you might have heard it. He says, but now you know God, or better, you're known by God. It's not really the big question, do you know God, but do you know that you're known by him? We live in a world that is a bit frightening sometimes. And we live in a private world sometimes that can be frightening. And so we try and control things. And Paul says, listen, there's any number of ways that people will try to get you to believe you can control the world. And Paul wants to say, I don't think that's the deal. I think the deal is you need to know who you are and to know who your father is. And that's why God sent his son that you might be sons. I need to hear this on a regular basis. I personally need to hear this on a regular basis because I'm like a professional Christian. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Some of you are not, you, you have greater blessings than I. I have to spend a lot of time with Christians. And the danger is the more you end up doing, and perhaps even the longer you've been involved in the faith, the more you think it rests on your shoulders, the more you think it's about what you do. And people like me and jobs like this need to be reminded by people like you, it's not about you. So that's how the best help. So thank you for the therapy this morning. It's been very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm not the only person in the room that needs to be reminded of that. Because you don't have to be called pastor to think it's actually all down to you. You don't have to be called pastor to feel that you're letting other people down. You don't have to be called pastor to think that you're not quite as good as you should be and that somehow God's not pleased or accepting of you. I'm not, you don't need to be a pastor to think you've got to work hard that God will be pleased with you. Some of you know how that feels. You don't have to be a pastor to have to be reminded you don't need to try and control everything. Paul says... You and I are his sons. There was a day when, for you and for me, we surrendered to Jesus. It was like, okay, I give in. For some of you, it was a moment of desperation. And for others of us, it was like much more clear-sighted. It was like, yes, okay, okay, the hound of heaven, I give in. You've got me. And on that day when you surrendered, he called you a son. He gave you full access. He 
gave you full identity. And at that moment, he said, you don't need to now work hard to control everything because actually, trust me, trust the one who's called you. And from time to time, you'll have moments which are more intense than others, but where suddenly it feels from within you something sort of like flows out and it will be that sense of Abba Father. Oh God, I feel, I feel really close to you. And there will be moments like that. And there'll be other days where it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't stop you being a son. The Spirit still calls out, Abba, Father. You pray on the days when you feel close. You pray on the days when you feel miles apart. Because the Spirit is doing this work of Abba, Father. But it has to begin somewhere. (laughs) And it begins by you going, I surrender. I want to be really sort of like blunt this morning. It's possible to be in church a whole number of years and to know about Jesus, but not really know him. You know the stories. You know the deal. You know that we're going to sing three songs. You know we're going to welcome people. You know I'm going to speak. You know we're going to take communion. You know how this works. But actually to live out of this fear that still tries to control, the fear that doesn't trust, the fear of how do I make sure I'm going to be okay. And for some it's like it's not being converted for the first time necessarily, but it is actually being converted. It's going, I want to be yours. I want that spirit to cry out within me, Abba, Father. I'm tired of trying to do it all. We're all different, different personalities, different histories, different stories, different wounds and different strengths. But you read a passage like this and Paul would say, to the folks in Galatia, can you remember who you are? Because there are people trying to disrupt that and they're trying to help you forget. And I want to remind you who you are and who your identity is. And people like me need to hear that from time to time. I'm going to ask Ian and the band to come back.